All right, well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to the well here at STSA. We missed y'all last week in the snow, and I hope that you missed us. And I hope that you are remembering what we are talking about for those who um, were here two weeks ago. We started a new series called Confronting Conflict. And what we're talking about is the inevitable conflict that takes place in life. And just by way of review, just give me just a few minutes here just to recap, just because I know after two weeks it's hard to remember what we talked about. But what we agreed two weeks ago was that life is all about relationships. And when you look at the quality of life, nothing affects the quality of your life more than your relationships. When relationships are good, most people would say life is good. And when relationships are bad, most people would say life is bad. Relationships are what directly contribute to the quality and satisfaction of your life more than anything else. So one of the inevitable features of relationships is conflict. There's no such thing as a deep relationship or a mature relationship that will ever take place, that will ever happen without conflict taking place at some point in time. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out a strategy of how to deal with the inevitable conflicts of life. Because one of the things that I said two weeks ago, for those who remember uh, when, when you were here, I was saying about those who are successful long-term in life are not those who avoid conflict the best, are not those who just happen to have kids that listen better than other people's kids, or spouses that always agree with them more than other people's spouses. It's not the people who have no conflict in life that are the successful ones. It's those who have the best plan or strategy to handle that conflict and win at that conflict. And that's what this series is all about. Not avoiding conflict, because we agreed that by nature, all of us are either like fight or flight. Okay, some of us run from conflict. Some of us roll up our sleeves and start swinging away. Some people like to fight. Some people like to flight. But we said is there's got to be a third option, which is not flight, not fight, but face conflict in a godly, God-honoring manner. That's the only way to be successful in life. And if you think, if you're wondering, what do I mean when I say success in life? I define success this way. And I think you'll agree with me. It's a good definition. Success is I get to the very end and I have no regrets. That's my goal in life. Is that when I get to the very, 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 very end, I lie there on my deathbed. I look back and say, no regrets. Because I've been with people who have regrets. And you've seen people who have the rest of their life to regret something that they can never go back and fix. And you see how many friendships were destroyed because of two people, or one of the two people didn't know how to address conflict in the proper way. Mishandled conflict, two friends regret the rest of their life. How many um, kids are estranged from their parents because of mishandled conflict? Too tough, too nice, too, um, too lenient, too strict. We didn't know how to handle conflict. How many churches are divided because of conflict? How many homes are divided today because people in that house didn't know how to handle conflict the right way? We need to avoid all these things. And we need to avoid these inevitable regrets that are going to happen if we don't have a plan to deal with conflict. That's what this series is all about. We want to learn how to win at conflict. Not to avoid it, not to fight, but to win. Okay? And what we talked about in week one, for those who are here, is the main thing to keep in mind is we have to, in order to kind of understand what's the overall strategy when it comes to conflict, it's refusing the fool's choice. Y'all remember when I talked about the fool's choice? The fool's choice says there's two options. Either you are truth or you are mercy. Either you be honest or you keep the friendship. But you can't do both. Like I can't speak up and tell you the truth and maintain the friendship. That's what a fool thinks, that I have to choose. 
either I speak the truth here, but I don't want to lose the friendship, so I don't speak up, and I just maintain the friendship, but at the price of truth. And what we said is, which one is loving? Being honest with a person or being merciful to a person? Showing truth or showing grace? Which one is love? Both. Both. Because we saw in our Lord Jesus Christ, he was the fullness of truth and the fullness of mercy. And we saw in him mercy and truth have met together. The mercy of God, the truth of God. And that's what we are talking about. How to address the conflicts of life in fullness of truth and in fullness of mercy. Okay, truth and love working together. If what I say is not truthful, it's not right. And if what I say is not honest, I'm sorry, not loving, then it's not right. I need to learn how to do both. And that's what we're discussing here today so that we can deal with the Debbie Downers and the narcissistic Neds and the egotistical whatevers of life that we talked about last time, okay? So that's where we're going here in this series, uh, just as, as a reminder. Now, what we're going to start to do today, last time I kind of laid the overview of where we're going and the overall strategy. We're going to start to dig into the strategy today. And we're going to start to see how we do that. Practically speaking, what do we need to do in order to be able to win when it comes to conflict and approach things in a, a refusing the fool's choice kind of a way? Right off the bat, you'll agree with me that whatever we talk about here today when it comes to conflict is easier said than done. Because like you saw in the video to open up right here, like we've all read the books, we've all seen the blog posts, we've all heard the podcast about like how we're supposed to approach conflict. But all of those things, like life doesn't happen in a vacuum. If conflict took place only here in a classroom setting, kind of in a, in a you're prepared kind of a way, it would be easy. But usually when your boss comes to you and criticizes you and tells you that you're not doing a good job and he's beating down on you and he's not giving you a break, usually you're not thinking to yourself, okay, this is a very important conversation. I need to approach this with truth and love. You're not thinking that. Why? Because emotions get involved. There's like a history here. Okay, what he did yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. And things start to escalate with one another. And you start to take things personally. He says things and you say things. When you find out a friend is gossiping about you, you don't automatically think to yourself, this friend is in need of love. You think to yourself, I won't say what you think to yourself because we're PG here, okay? My point is, how many times do you finish that conversation with your boss with your friend, with your spouse, with your children, how many times do you finish that conversation? And then the next day or the next day or the next day or a week or a month later, you think to yourself, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? I really wish I hadn't said that. I wish I could have said, or I wish I would have said nothing. How many times do we regret what we say all the time? Because what I'm trying to show you is that the problem is not that we're stupid people. The problem is not that we don't know what to say. The problem is, in the heat of the moment, we can't get ourselves to say what we know we're supposed to say. And we don't even think about it in the heat of the moment, and we react before we think, and then when we later cool off and we think, we say, what the world was I thinking? Well, what I'm going to show you today, what we're going to discuss here today, is that believe it or not, you may not have been thinking at all. And science will actually tell you that you may not have been thinking whatsoever. Because one of the things that we're going to see, and you already know this to be true, is that when it matters most, we are usually at our worst. When it matters least, right now, we are at our best. 
I am at my best right now. I can tell you exactly what a husband should say to a wife. I can tell you everything right now. This doesn't matter. I can tell you how I should treat my children right now. It doesn't matter. Because when it matters most, that's when I need to be at my best. And what we're going to discover is by our nature, usually when it matters most, we are at our worst. Proverbs 25, verse 28, King Solomon says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. What is a city without walls back in the day of Solomon? A city without walls is defenseless. A city without walls is vulnerable. A city without walls will be destroyed. And same with the person who has no control over his spirit, over his emotions, over his reaction when things get volatile. When it matters most, we are at our worst. Now, I want to break down that sentence, when it matters most, we're at our worst. I want to break it down. First, when it matters most, and then show you what it means we're at our worst. First of all, when does it matter most? What we need to learn how to do is diagnose what I'm going to call the critical conversations of life. We have many conversations throughout our day. Many, many, many times we talk to our friend, we talk to our spouse, we talk to all kinds of our boss, we talk to our coworkers, many conversations. The majority of them fall into a category of trivial or meaningless. But there are critical conversations. And critical conversations are the ones that have the high regret potential. That have the potential to, at the end of the conversation, I say, I wish I hadn't said that. What we need to learn how to do is analyze those and diagnose them before the end of them. How many times, just to show you, how many times? I'm going to give lots of examples here today, and I don't want you to think the examples I'm giving are about myself, okay? Because I was tempted here to, to shy away from some standard marriage examples because they're going to say, oh, this is what him and I'm not saying anything about my wife. Or about, I'm just giving examples, okay, from what? How many times a casual conversation with your wife about plans for the weekend turns into you don't love me and you don't listen to me? We were just talking about where to eat for the night. And the next thing you ended up knowing is that you don't love me and you don't care about me and you don't, what, what? How many times a casual conversation with a friend about, hey, let's go here or no, let's go there. Or, hey, what did you do last night? Turns into, especially online. How many casual, friendly posts on the Facebook, as the young people call it these days, turns into he said and she said and fighting and friends and all kinds of, what we need to do is to identify these critical conversations so we are not blindsided by them as we so often are in life. That we just started a conversation, didn't seem like anything was going to happen, and next thing we know, there are regrets and all kinds of different things. There's a book I told you all about last time. It's called Crucial Conversations. Okay, so I'm kind of uh, taking that idea, but I call it critical for a reason. You'll see why in a little bit. Critical Conversations. The man in that book called Crucial Conversations says there are three factors that lead to a critical conversation. And we need to identify, because when all these three factors are there, the regret potential is high, so take care. Three factors are, number one, opposing opinions. You disagree about something. You disagree about, like I said, where to go spend a summer vacation. Or you disagree about your role at the office. Or you disagree about who should be washing the dishes and who should be taking the kids to soccer practice. There's a disagreement, opposing opinions. By themselves, that's not a big deal. But then you add high stakes, meaning it's something of value. It's not, it's not just necessarily who's supposed to unload the dishwasher, but it is about, you know, how are we going to pay for college? Or it's about 
you know, how you treat me as a wife. Or it's about uh, a promotion in the office, something high stakes. And then the kicker is what's at the bottom is the strong emotions. Where it's no more just about the actual issue, but there is respect, love, care, listening. You don't listen. Strong emotions get involved. When these three factors are involved, you know how in the hospital you have someone who's like in a regular room and then at some point in time they take them to the ICU, okay? Moving from a regular room to the ICU is all hands on deck, is take care, something is happening. Like when you are regular, you're kind of stable, okay, this and this, then all of a sudden you say, no, I'm in the ICU, then everything, everything makes a difference when you're in the ICU. Like everything needs to be monitored, all hands on deck. And sometimes we need to realize when a conversation has shifted from an ordinary, lighthearted, just discussing into a, this is a critical conversation. And how I respond in this conversation will bear long-term impact on this relationship. See what I'm saying is we usually, we don't even think that way. We're just kind of reacting, 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 reacting. And then we get to the end of it and realize what the heck were we thinking? How come I didn't think of this? Because we didn't realize that this had shifted from a regular conversation to a critical conversation. And the regret potential is high. But you know what else is high in a critical conversation? Not just the regret potential, but also the satisfaction potential. The moving us closer in intimacy potential. The moving up the corporate ladder potential. The winning over my boss and my coworkers and those who work for me potential is increased when it's a critical conversation. So you know something's gonna shift either to the left or to the right. So what we need to do, be able to diagnose it, develop a plan for it. But I'll tell you something right off the bat, how you and me, we are somewhat handicapped when it comes to critical conversations. You know why? The younger you are, the more handicapped you are. You know why? Because technology has done us a disservice here. And I'm not against technology. I'm not saying like, you know, we should all you know, send each other things in the mail. Okay, I'm not saying, I'm not like against Facebook or, or anything like that. I'm not saying it that way. But what I'm saying is, for those who have grown up in the digital age, we have unfortunately, sadly, we don't know how to communicate with each other face to face when it comes to critical conversations. And too many critical conversations are taking place over electronic means. Gchat. Uh, uh, Facebook posts, uh, texting one another. You know how many times I hear the following story, some, some form of the following story, and, and in front of God, this is a true story, I hear it all the time. Two people, let's say two people are dating, or friends, or whatever it may be, and, you know, I confronted this person about this. Yeah, and then what did he say? He said this. Oh, what did you say? I said this. And then what he respond? I don't know. Why do you don't know? Because he had to go offline. Like, what? You tell me, you saying, like you used the word I said to the person and you didn't actually say anything, okay? You're just talking about, you having this conversation on texting? No, not texting, Gchat. What's Gchat? What are you having this conversation over Gchat for? Again, I'm not saying that, that these technology things are bad. Technology is great, Gchat is great, texting is great, I love them. But they are meant to enhance communication, not to replace communication. And too many of us, we don't know how to have critical conversations. I'll be honest with you. We don't know how to do it. And when things get a little bit heated and there's emotions involved, what we do is we just pull to the back because we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to get up, walk across the hall, and go to my coworker and say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? We don't know how to do that. We just know how to G-check. We don't know how to pick up a phone. You know what? Pick up a phone. 
Okay, how many of us use the phone to actually make phone calls? We don't know how to pick up a phone and call someone. We don't know how to say, you know what? Let's sit together face to face because I'm hearing stuff and you're hearing stuff about me and I'm hearing stuff about you. Let's sit face to face and clear this up. We don't know how to do that anymore. We get uncomfortable in those situations. So because we're uncomfortable, we just avoid them. And we say, you know what? It's easier just to, it's easier to find a new friend than to have that conversation. It's easier to find a new friend. I have 500 on Facebook to choose from. <clears throat> and then we say we lack depth in our relationships. And then we say we have lots of acquaintances, not many friends. And then we say I'm there for everyone else. No one is there for me. You know why? Because you have avoided any opportunity to have depth in your relationship because you cannot have depth without conflict. It is inevitable. You can't have depth without at some point having conflict. And because you are uncomfortable in the conflict, you avoid it like the plague. And you keep people at arm's length, and you keep it superficial, and as soon as it gets close and something happens, you don't know, how to, you know how, to, how to face them. You know how to confront. So what you do, on to the next friend. No more. We need to face up to that. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15. Jesus said, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. You know what Jesus is saying right there? Go confront your brother. I know it's not easy, but the end result of it, to gain a brother, is more valuable. It's worth it to gain a brother or a sister or a child or a coworker or a boss or a parent or a spouse. To gain one, what Jesus is saying here, that relationships are the quality of life. I said earlier, when it matters most, we're at our worst. When does it matter most? When it's a critical conversation, when opinions differ, stakes are high, and emotions are involved. This is when it matters most. Now, what happens to us in these situations when it matters most? Again, life would be a lot easier if, if conflict happened kind of on in, in a vacuum or kind of on schedule. Like, it would be great if my wife, again, I'm, this, don't take these examples as anything. It would be great if my wife told me, you know what, today I'm coming home from work, and today I'm going to feel lonely and I'm going to feel sad, and I'm going to feel neglected, and I'm not going to feel like you're carrying your weight around here. So just giving you a heads up that when you get home from work, this is how I will be feeling. But what's much more likely, okay, typical husband comes home, had a great day at the office, the sun is shining, and the world is great as far as he's concerned. He walks into the house, and he is blindsided to find out that he comes home and say, hey, sweetheart, what's for dinner? And his wife hands him two stinky kids and says to him that you're late. You said you'd be home by 5. It's 5.15. You're supposed to pick up milk on the way home. You didn't pick up milk. Your socks are by the bed. Your towel is on the floor. And your underwear is by the laundry basket. Why can it not go in the laundry basket? Why does it have to be by it? And he's blindsided. And he didn't have any idea. And it'd be great if he was prepared so he could say, okay, you know what? She's struggling today. This is a critical conversation. I need to be truth and love. It'd be great. But what does he usually do in that situation? Yeah, it's that one guy went, <laughs> okay. He reacts. He reacts. And if he's a fighter, he fights. And if he's a fleer, he flees and just says, okay, and crawls into his little shell. And we react because that's unfortunately not how life is. It'd be great if your boss gave you a heads up and told you, you know what, on this day, I'm going to embarrass you publicly. So can we schedule it, put it on the calendar so you know when it is? 
It'd be great if your kids gave you a two-week notice before rebelling. It'd be great if, if, if your parents, before they uh, took away your stuff, would give you a heads up so that you can find another route. That would be great if life was lived that way, but that's not life. Life happens, and we need to be able, when the conversation becomes critical, to be able to step outside of it and look at it and say, something important is happening. How should I respond? Now, here's the unfortunate part. I said when we're at our, when it matters most, we're at our worst. I'm going to give you some science right here that is fascinating stuff that will show you. You know how we always think to ourselves, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? Well, science says that oftentimes when you are at your emotional high, you're actually not thinking at all. And I'm going to take my life into my hands right here, right now. Okay, I'm going to risk my life on this one, okay, as a non-emotional person. I'm not saying emotions are bad. Emotions are great. God gave them to us. They're fantastic. But when emotions are high, we all know emotions. I'm ready to duck, okay? We all know emotions cloud our thinking. We all know emotions make us sometimes irrational. Well, did you know that emotions can actually make you dumber? I didn't say dumb. I said dumber. Let me tell you why. What happens when you walk into the house and, like I said, you get blindsided by, you didn't do this and you didn't do this and you didn't do that? What happens when your boss humiliates you publicly and you are steaming inside? What physiological things are happening inside your body that are taking place that have an effect on you? There are two little, I don't know where they are, but I'm a point, I think they're right here. Two little things above your kidney called your adrenal glands. Okay, all the doctors are ready to pounce on me on this one, but I checked my notes on this one, okay? Because anytime I say science stuff, they always tell me that I'm wrong, but I check. Adrenal glands. Look it up when you go home, boys and girls. Adrenal glands are what pump adrenaline into your bloodstream, okay? What does adrenaline do when it gets pumped in your bloodstream? You know that when you feel like, like when you're attacked by a bear, okay, and you, adrenaline starts pumping, or sports is a, great, is a great way of looking at it. People can do things in sports. They can run faster than they ever thought. They can throw a ball further. They can endure pain like you can't imagine. When the adrenaline is pumping, you become superhuman in some ways. You can do things that you could not otherwise normally do. And everyone understands that. But how does that work? What does the adrenaline do that allows me to be able to do those things? Well, adrenaline gives you something, but at a price of something. What adrenaline does when it, when it kind of jumps into your system, your body gets like a shock, and it's an all-hands-on-deck shock. We're in danger. Something is happening. It's the body's defense mechanism that, like I said, I walked into the house, and something happened, so I'm on alert. So the body says, alert, 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 alert. And then once that happens, the blood starts pumping, and the blood starts pumping away from non-essential tasks towards what the body deems to be like essential for survival. Specifically, your large muscles in your arm and in your legs. When the adrenaline gets pumping, more blood to your arms and to your legs. That's why you get stronger. That's why you can endure more pain. That's why you can run faster when you're being chased by a dog or whatever it may be. You can do more physical when the adrenaline starts pumping. Well, where's that blood being pulled from? It's being pulled from your brain. And specifically, from the parts of your brain that help you to make good decisions. So what that says is, when you are, stay with me on this, when your wife comes to you, 
with that comment or your husband or your boss or your whatever. You are prepared to face that conversation with the physical ability of a linebacker, with the intellectual ability of a first grader. Which is why it makes sense so often we get to the end of that conversation and we say, what was I thinking? And the answer is, you weren't. Your body is ready, to, uh, uh, ready for a bear attack or a lion attack, not like real talk with my wife. And that's what happens to us. This is why, just to show you that just, you don't think I'm, I'm, I'm saying anything about the emotional. Why do we say love is blind? What does it mean love is blind? Love is blind means what? It means two people, when they're in love, okay, they don't think, they, don't, they, they can do whatever they want, they can neglect whatever, and the whole world, love is blind. Why? Because when that love and that stuff, then they're not thinking. This is why people plead in court temporary insanity. Because when you are attacked or when the emotions start surging inside you, you are temporarily insane. Because you cannot process information and make good decisions. Forget about all that stuff. Sports. I said adrenaline pumping. What do we always talk about in sports? What makes the difference between the great players and the really great, the elite players? Are those who are good under pressure. What does under pressure mean? Under pressure means that when the, the, the lights are brightest and the moment is at its highest, you sometimes think to yourself, what was that guy thinking? Why did that guy throw it over there? How come he couldn't see that guy wide open in the back of the end zone? Well, that's what pressure does. It allows you to perform physically at a very high level, but intellectually at a very low level. That's why those who can handle the pressure and they can be up there and the adrenaline's pumping and they can still think and they can still process, those are the people who get millions of dollars contracts, okay, and when it comes to sports. So what I'm trying to say is that by our nature, when it matters most, we are at our worst. So what are we going to do? What does an athlete do? What does a football team, what, what, what are the Denver Broncos and the Carolina Panthers spending these two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl doing? Practicing and coming up with a plan. Coming up with a plan. That when this, then we will do this. To minimize the thinking process. That when this happens, we will react as such. And that's what we need to do when it comes to the critical conversations. We need to minimize the thinking on the spot and prepare in advance and say, when the conversation goes critical, when emotions go high, opinions are opposing, and the stakes are high. When that happens, this is how I'm going to respond. No thinking. No thinking, just reacting, but I have my reaction prepared in advance, as much as I can. And we're going to do the following. We're going to come up with a three-step plan. One, step one today, two next week, the week after that, be third. And it goes like this. It starts with your heart, and then to your mind, and then to your mouth. Today, we're going to do start with the heart. It starts with the heart, and then with the mind. Master your stories. That's next week. And then finally, the fourth week, we're going to talk about what comes out of our mouth. You see, my point here is before, when I'm in a critical conversation, I don't run to speak. I don't run to speak. Speak is actually the last thing. After you have taken care of this and then worked on this, then you're ready to go this. But our problem is we usually go this first and then this second, and we don't even care about this. We do it backwards. We're going to start with the heart, then we go to the mind, and then we're going to go to the mouth. Jesus, oops, sorry, I forgot this quote here. Ambrose Pierce said, speak when you are angry, you will make the best speech you will ever regret. I think we all agree on that one. 
But what I want is this Jesus quote right here. That's better. Matthew 7, verse 4. How can you say to your brother? Listen, he's saying, how can you open your mouth, okay, and say something to your brother until you've done the following? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Step one of confronting conflict is not to open your mouth. Step one is start with the heart. And specifically, here's what it means to start with the heart. Start with the heart means you begin with me first, a second. Me first, a second. When it comes to solving this conflict. True story. Not of me, but I read about it in a book. Dad was at Disneyland with his two uh, daughters, aged 12 and 10. Oh, no, sorry, 10 and 8. 10 and 8-year-old daughters. They're at Disneyland, hot summer day, 10,000 degrees. So they drank more water than could fit, like, like two gallons of water, okay? Because they're out there all day in that hot summer sun. They get back to the hotel, and both girls need to go to the bathroom. And the whole way home, they're saying, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go. Problem in the hotel is how many bathrooms are in the hotel room? Just one. So each one says, I'm going first. No, I'm going first. No, I'm going first. No, I need to go. No, I really need to go. No, I need to go. And each of them is saying, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go. They get out of the car. They both sprint up the stairs to the bathroom, and they're both in there fighting. See who gets to go in. And tell her to get out of here. And she's so selfish, and she's so stubborn. The dad says to them, look, girls, I'm going to let you two work this out. You two figure this out, just one rule, no hitting each other. You two figure this out. Dad leaves, goes, sits on the couch, looks at his watch. He hears screaming, Are you so selfish? Are you never going to buy Screaming, screaming, screaming. He looks at his watch, looks at his watch, he looks at his watch. 25 minutes later, he hears whoosh. And then 15 seconds after that, he hears the second flush. Let me ask you a question. Why did it take so long for these two girls to solve this problem? Why did it, should it have taken 25 minutes for two girls who were desperate to urinate, exploding in the insides, should it have taken 25 minutes for them to solve this problem? The first problem that we need to confront when it comes to conflict is not external, it's internal. It's the question of my motive. What do I want? What's my goal? If you were to go to these two girls in the middle of their fight and say, y'all are fighting. What, what, you, like let's separate the girls, you. What do you want out of this? What's your goal? What would she say? I'd go to the bathroom. She wanna go to the bathroom. All I want is to go to the bathroom. And if I would ask this girl, what do you want? Say the same thing. All I want is to go to the bathroom. Okay, so why is it that you haven't gone to the bathroom? Because she's so stubborn. And because she's selfish. And because she, because she, because she. Let me ask you a question. Is all these girls wanted was to go to the bathroom? If really their highest priority in life at this moment was to go to the bathroom as quickly as possible, would the situation have taken 25 minutes? No, because each of them could have gone in five seconds. Each of them could have said, okay, you go and then I'll go. So what was their priority? 
Look, listen carefully to this. We all think that our motives are pure. You're in a conflict with your spouse, with your boss, with your friend, whatever it may be. You are 100% convinced that you are an angel and your motive is pure. And all you want is what's right. You know what their motive was? Their motive began right, for sure. But you know what happens when that adrenaline starts pumping and the emotions start going? It quickly, the motives degenerate. And their motive was no more about going to the bathroom. It was about winning. It was about winning. Or, said another way, not losing. It wasn't about the relief of going to the bathroom. It was about, over my dead body, she's going to go before me. It was about, there is no way I'm giving in on this one. Step one in confronting conflict is confront myself. There's two kinds of people in life when it comes to relationship. There's winners and there's losers. When I say that, I don't mean people who win the argument and lose the argument. I'm saying people who win at relationships, people who succeed, people who have high depth and quality and, and in their relational life, whatever it may be, and people who stink at relationships. And these people think that the problem is the people that they relate to. This person says it's because his wife is nicer than mine. It's because his parents were easier than mine. It's because his boss isn't like mine. People think that it's always the external. Just like these two girls thought it's her fault that I haven't gone to the bathroom. People who win at relationships in life are people who know that the problem is never 100% the other person. Never 100% the other person. There's always a me factor involved. And before I begin working on us, I need to begin working on me. And before I, need, before I begin confronting the other person about what they need to change, what they need to do, I need to examine my own motives inside my heart and see what's the truth. What am I really aiming for inside right here? And so winners do. You know what losers do when it comes to relationships? Losers listen to everything I'm saying right now, underline a highlight, then give it to their spouse and say, pay close attention to the underlined parts. <laughs> underline it for your sake. Me first, a second. What does that mean specifically? I'll give you three ideas, okay? Three kind of big ideas, and you can kind of break it down and, and apply it as you see fit. Evaluate your true motive. Two, set a clear objective. Three, remain laser-focused. If you are logical, you love what I'm saying. If you're on the emotional side, you think this is an impossibility. I'm going to show you it's not as hard as you think. It's not as hard as you think. You evaluate your motive. What is it that I'm really aiming for? You set a clear objective. I want to accomplish X from this conversation. And then you remain laser focused on accomplishing that goal. And you don't allow yourself to get sidetracked. Look, what I'm saying right now, I am sometimes shocked. Shocked? And again, I'm not saying I'm perfect, okay? Don't think that I'm saying I'm perfect. But I tend to be analytical, not emotional. So these kinds of things tend to be, for me, easier to see on the outside, especially when it comes to your problems, okay? It's a lot harder to see for oneself, but it is shocking to me how foreign this concept is. For example, wife will come and say, I just want my husband to talk, I just want my husband to talk to me. I just want him to talk to me. I just want him to talk to me, okay? But do you realize that the action that you're doing right now has the exact opposite effect of that? Because by following him around the house, telling him how much you want to talk him to talk to you, he is doing the exact opposite. He's pulling more and more into his shell. How can you not see that what you're doing is having the opposite impact? From the outside, easy. From the inside, hard. How many times children 
will say, I just want them to respect me. I want them to treat me like an adult. Okay, but your behavior that you're doing right now is having the opposite impact because you're acting more and more like a child. I want my boss to respect me. I want him to know that, I'm, that I know what I'm talking about. Okay, but when you go behind his back and stab him in the back like that, that ain't going to get that job done. How often do we start off with a pure motive in life, but then it degenerates into, I want to show him who's the real boss around here. I want to, I hope we never say this in marriage, but I know we do. I want to teach him a lesson or teach her a lesson. And just so you don't think that I'm saying it myself, that I'm great and I got it all figured out, I'll tell you my weakness when it comes to this. I am, when it comes to marriage, my wife knows this, I'm not a fighter, I'm a flighter. Okay, I'm a pull into my shell kind of a thing. I'm the kind of guy when I feel like attacked or I feel like, you know, whatever it may be, I, I go passive aggressive, I slip into my little shell and, and I need to ask myself, I need to ask myself that if there's really this issue that is concerning me and it's in front of me, Will pulling into my shell and hiding in it for three months solve this issue? See, in our minds, that's kind of what we convince ourselves. That, you know what? This will, this will teach her. And this will show her. But in fact, we're actually only doing it because we're usually just trying to win. True story. This was probably maybe, uh, let's say, somewhere between six and ten years ago. Okay, somewhere around there. I was... Um, over at St. Mark's, where I served as priest for so many years before, and someone came to me at the end of, like, a church service. And this is in front of, like, a lot of people, okay? A lot of people. And it was this man, and this man, um, like, he was, uh, was oh, what's the right word? He's not a nice man, okay? He's, he's, he's a nincompoop is the only thing I can think of right now, okay? He's a nincompoop by all stretch of the imagination, okay? Like, he's... Yeah, he's, he's, whatever. He came to me. His daughter was one of the children. His daughter was probably like 16, 17, or 15, somewhere around there, who like, you know, I had been trying to help this girl out, and, you know, she confessed with me, and, you know, like I knew this girl from Sunday school back in the day, and I had been trying to help this girl out in lots of ways and, and try to support her. Her dad, by everyone's admission, okay, even his own, was a negligent dad, okay, and he was like a bad dad. I don't, I don't really want to get into that. But anyway... He had a problem with his daughter, and it was easier for him to blame me than it was to blame himself. Okay, so he came to me in front of a large group of people, and he began to berate me. Mix of English and Arabic and maybe Chinese and Korean. I don't know what he was saying, okay? But he was just started going off on me. By my nature, okay, I said when it comes to me and my wife, I'm a flight. When it comes to me, kind of in the public setting, I told you I'm the sword. Okay, and I'm truth. And the truth is, is you're a nincompoop, Okay. The truth is, without saying this in any biased way, I've done more for your daughter than you have. And I know that. And all these other people around here probably would say the same thing. So by my nature, I wanted to fire back. But somehow, God gave me the presence of mind to ask myself a question. What do I want to happen out of this conversation? So my first thought was, I want to show him that he's an nincompoop, Okay. And I want to show the rest of the world, these guys around, that he is a bad man. And I thought to myself, and then what? What do I win after that? He says, you know what? I don't really care about him. I care about two people here. I care about, number one, God. I want this to be good. And number two, I want to win these people. Because there was, like I said, like 20, 30 people who were kind of onlookers at the time listening in. 
Most of them knowing that I'm in the right, but also seeing how I'm going to react. So I said to myself, you know what? I don't care about him. I care about him, and I care about them. So I listened. I listened. Okay, I didn't really listen like... I listened, though. I responded briefly, okay, shortly, politely. I didn't say anything, but I basically... Not only, not only do I not regret what I did that day, not only did I not walk out of church that day with the regret saying, what was I thinking, needing to apologize, or needing to explain, not only do I not regret... I actually am quite proud of the way I handled that. And all those people around me came to me afterwards and said, you know what, we know that he's a this and he's a this. Don't listen to him and we support you and we love you. So not only did I not regret what happened on that day, in fact, I'm quite proud of it. And I'd say the results were extremely positive. Now, I'm not trying to say that I'm great, but I want you to understand what turned this critical conversation, opposing opinions, high stakes, strong emotions, from a very regretful incident it could have been, to a very positive incident. What happened is that I was able to call time out, step out of the conversation, analyze it, and say, what is it that I want to accomplish here? What is my goal? What do I want tomorrow morning to say happened on this day? Set a goal, clear objective, laser focused. I'm not going to let him sucker me into responding because that's against my objective. I'm not going to get him to push my buttons because that's against my objective. I'm not going to let him drive this conversation in a direction that he wants because that's against my objective. I know where I want to go. Proverbs 21, verse 23. Solomon says, Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Amen to that. I am thankful that day that God gave me grace to have my tongue guarded because he kept me from a lot of troubles. Because like I said, I know myself, and if I had opened on the guy... That would have been public. Like, I could have, got, could have been a bad situation. So I, I'm throwing it back at you now. I'm throwing it back at you. That conversation you want to have with your wife or your husband, what do you want the outcome of that to be? You have to be honest. You have to ask yourself, what is your true motive of having that conversation with your boss, having that conversation with your mom, with your child, with your roommate? What's the goal? Is the goal truly truth and love? Is that the objective? That, you know what, this person doesn't see the truth, so I want to show them truth in a loving manner. Is the objective, like we talked about two weeks ago, to fill the pool of shared meaning like we talked about? Or is the objective to defend myself, teach a lesson, show him the tr- that, that, that he's a this or that she's a that? Which of the two is my objective? Even more explicitly, what I would encourage you to do if you struggle with this is... If you're going to like prepare to have a conversation with someone or you're going to like approach this, make a piece of paper with two columns. What is it you want and what is it you don't want from this conversation? What is it you want to happen and what is it you don't want to happen? I want my husband to be more reliable around the home, but I don't want him to feel like I'm not on his side. I want my friend to see the truth about this relationship that she's in that she can't see, but I want her to know that I support her no matter what she does. I want and I don't want. I want my boss to listen to my opinion, but I don't want him to think that I don't, I'm not loyal to him. What do I want? What do I don't want? What's my motive? What's my objective? And then when I get in that conversation, boom. Remember two weeks ago, I talked about granny's pie. Okay, granny's whatever pie that she makes. What do I want? I want her to know that I love her and I care about her and she's an important person in my life, but I also want her to know that a shoelace is more appetizing than the pie that she just made to me. 
truth and love. Last verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. This is kind of our theme verse for this series, and hopefully by the end of it, we can really ingrain it inside. We will no longer be children. We want to grow up. We want to be mature. We should no longer be children. How will we manifest our maturity? But we will speak the truth in love, and we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Christ is truth and love, and that's the sign of a mature believer in Christ is that he does not have to make a choice. Should I be honest or should I be loving? Should I say what this person needs to hear or should I just gloss it over to maintain the friendship? A mature believer in Christ, who one who is successful in relationships, realizes that's a fool's choice. I will choose to do neither. I will choose to be the fullness of truth and the fullness of love. That's who Jesus was. And that's who we're going to be. And that's the people who are going to have success in relationships. That's the people who are going to get to the end and say, you know what? I may have not had, you know, peace in every relationship, but I don't got any regrets. I may not be close with every person that I wanted to be close with, or things may not have gone exactly as planned, but you know what? I don't have any regrets because I was honest and I was loving. And I said the truth, but I said it always in love. And that's the goal in front of us. I know some of you can say to yourselves, I, I understand I'm, I'm overly simplifying it. I'm making it too mathematical and too kind of analytical. And I understand that reality isn't quite as, 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 as clean cut as this. And some of you say, you don't know my husband. You don't know my boss. You don't know my kids. Like, you don't understand. It's impossible. They, no, there's no way that you can be truthful and loving with these people. And I would say to you the following. I would say to you, you know what? You might be right, but I guarantee you, if you have that attitude, you'll never know if you were wrong. I guarantee you, if you think it's impossible to speak truth and love with your husband or your boss or whoever it is, I guarantee you, you will be right. If you go in with that attitude, that's a defeatist attitude and you will lose every single time. What I'm saying is the opposite is this. You will be shocked at how your brain will be smarter than you realize when you give your brain no other option. When you tell your brain, I will not sacrifice truth for love. I will not go this route or this route. I will be honest and loving. And you force your brain working with the spirit of God, which is inside you say, I must find a way to tell my spouse that I love her, but that what she's doing is wrong. I must find a way to tell my boss that it's unacceptable the way he's treating me, but I'm still loyal to him. I must find a way to do both. I will not sacrifice one for the other. You'll be shocked when you put yourself into a corner and you say, the only option is fullness of truth, fullness of love. Oh, God will help you to come up with a way. Okay. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for bringing us here this morning, and thank you for, for the truth that you've kind of brought in front of our eyes. Lord, help us to examine ourselves before we examine anyone else, to look at the, the log in our own eyes before we look at the speck in our brother's eyes. To realize that, that sometimes our motives aren't really pure. And we can kind of convince ourselves that they are, but you, you know the truth that's inside of us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see the truth. Help us to know the truth about ourselves, to be honest with ourselves, to ask ourselves the tough questions and to be pure in our motives, seeking not to win, but seeking really to confront the conflict in truth and love as you taught us, Lord. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all your saints. Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Mm -hmm.